Today I'm speaking with Douglas Murray. Douglas is an associate editor at The Spectator, and he writes for many other publications, including The Sunday Times, Standpoint, and The Wall Street Journal. He's also given talks at both the British and European parliaments and at the White House. And he's most recently the author of a wonderful book titled The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, Islam. And if you don't know him, Douglas is a truly wonderful debater. I recommend you check out more or less anything you can find from him on YouTube. Douglas and I spent a lot of time in this podcast, certainly most of the time, talking about the situation in Europe with respect to immigration and Islam and the social attitudes in the Muslim community that are at odds with values that really should be, really must be, non-negotiable, like free speech and women's rights and gay rights. And what I'd like to point out is that neither of us are against immigration. And you might not notice that in the first hour or so. And we're not against Muslim immigration. In fact, both of us count among our friends Muslims and former Muslims who are precisely the sorts of people we are most concerned to protect. And in particular, we're worried about protecting them from many of the illiberal people who have been pouring into Europe. I know there are some things that Douglas and I disagree about. I think we have a different sense of the place of Christianity as a foundation of Western values. I don't give it much of a place at all, certainly not a contemporary one, and Douglas does. But we'll tackle that in another podcast. In this one, we more or less fully agree on what we're against. And what we're against is Western civilization committing suicide. And if you think that puts the matter too strongly, you haven't read Douglas's book, and you probably haven't been paying much attention to what's been happening in Europe. And if you think one has to be a fan of Trump in order to worry about this, well, then you haven't been paying attention to this podcast. But on the topic of Trump, Trump just gave a speech in Poland where he said, and I quote, The fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. Do we have the confidence in our values to defend them at any cost? Do we have enough respect for our citizens to protect our borders? Do we have the desire and the courage to preserve our civilization in the face of those who would subvert or destroy it? End quote. And while I find abundant fault with the messenger, as you know, I can't find fault with that particular message. And the fact that liberals can't seem to see what's at stake here, the fact that they are embarrassed to defend, quote, Western values, as though that were synonymous with racism or the legacy of colonialism, or xenophobia, or a lack of compassion, that is making liberalism politically defunct at this point. And that increasingly worries me. And it, you know, happily in the United States, we are in a better situation demographically and with respect to immigration and just geographically, and that has implications for immigration. But one cannot be cheerful about what's been happening in Europe. And in his book and in this conversation, Douglas finds a path through this wilderness of competing concerns that is 
deeply ethical and also deeply pragmatic. And I don't think Trump comes up, or if he does, it's just in passing, so consider yourself spared. But Douglas and I get into the fairly gloomy thesis of his very witty book, which is that what's happening in Europe is something that not even the most paranoid people would have predicted a decade ago. And it concerns all of us. And now I give you Douglas Murray. I am here with Douglas Murray. Douglas, thanks for coming back on the podcast. It's a great pleasure to be with you. It's been, what, almost two years? Yeah, I, I have actually, I haven't checked, but it was, we last spoke when the refugee crisis in Europe was getting its most press here in the, in the U.S. I know it had been going on for years before that, unremarked more or less here, but we spoke about immigration and all of its attendant problems, and we will cover some of the same ground again because you've written this great and harrowing book on the topic. Uh, but first, congratulations on the book. It seems well-launched, and it's a fantastic book. Well, thank you. That's very kind. It's just really a beautiful read, and a ve- it's, I mean, it's, it's grim. Uh, don't get me wrong. There's, there's not a lot of hope in the book, but it's, it's very funny. Your style of approaching this is rather than be hectoring and communicating a sustained sense of emergency, you become quite ironic, and I recommend people pick it up simply to be amused in addition to being <laughs> terrified. <laughs> That's a fine combination of feeling. It's all too rare. Now, you've painted a picture of certainly the possible destruction of Europe, and I would say even the likely destruction of Europe. You, you, could, you can walk me back from the cliff's edge if you think I'm being too pessimistic over the course of this hour, but it's hard to feel hopeful that this will turn out well. And, and at, at the center of this, you paint a picture of, of a really a morally exhausted civilization, and one, one that is certain of absolutely nothing apart from the fact that it has no right to think itself better than any other civilization. So I, I, I guess we, we could just start with kind of the nihilism and self-doubt at the core of this problem. No, I, um, I mean, the book is, is called The Strange Death of Europe with the subtitle Immigration, Identity, Islam. And I mean, I've been thinking about and writing about these areas and researching them for a very long time now. And it was during the 2015 crisis that uh, the uh, migrant crisis, refugee crisis, um, that I sort of realized this was just, um, this was the epitome of everything that had been going on. And the, 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 the core thing really was, was two things. One was the mass movements of people into Europe in a sped up form of something that had been going on for decades. And the second was the, the fact that this would be happening at the time that, in my view, Europe had lost any faith in itself or its own right to continue, particularly in a recognizable form. And I think the combination of these two factors is it's pretty hard to see how this ends well. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I, I constantly throughout the book try to show that it's not, it's not the case that it's not the case that there's no argument for, for instance, Angela Merkel uh, um, opening the doors. Uh, it's, it's not as if there's no 
no understandable reason or no justification for Europeans feeling the way they do about their history or the way in which we feel towards our past and the way in which we therefore feel in the present. And I, you know, I'm trying to to explain this because it's something we all feel, to my mind at any rate, something like this crisis um, goes down the middle of all of us. I mean, it's, you know, there are people on the left who say, let everyone in. There are some people on the right who say, you know, very few, but some people say, you know, let them drown. I think these are, these are people who are, are, are peddling fantasies, albeit very dark and grim fantasies, but they are, they're not, they're not things you can, you know, they're not things that most of us could possibly think. And so therefore, what I'm trying to do is to lay out what is what we're really facing uh, in all its grim uh, complexity and amusement. I think you find that the middle line there wonderfully, as you point out in the book, this really, for the most part, isn't a contest between good and evil. This is a contest between competing virtues. I mean, and I think you put it in terms of justice and mercy. Yes. And that's not often remarked on because each side is so busy painting the other as heartless or insane. Yes. This is, this is one of the things I've felt so strongly in recent years and which, you know, we've all come across some symptoms of or uh, demonstrations of. But I, uh, to my mind, this is, um, this is what we should do with all these sort of complex issues. I I had strong feelings that we were doing something suicidal in Europe. Um, but I knew also that I had to go and look this in the face. I had to see it at its, at its hardest. I had to go, as I did, to the reception ports of southern Europe, of the Italian and Greek islands, and, and speak to the people who literally just got off the boats, to see the boats coming in, to, to hear the stories of the people coming from all over Africa, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, the Far East, people from as far away as Bangladesh, Afghanistan, Pakistan. And I had to hear their stories, as well as hearing from the, uh, you know, the, the speaking to people in the chancelleries of Europe and so on. And, and the reason for this was, as you mentioned, is this thing that, you know, we are very used, sadly, in all of our political discussion to discussions that are basically, you know, I'm, uh, I'm Churchill, you're Hitler. You know, or I'm Churchill, you're Chamberlain, and uh, I'm good, you're a Nazi. And uh, it's it's my view that on something like the migration crisis, it's 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 only possible to see it in these terms of competing virtues. I take it from Aristotle that there are there are sometimes things that are two goods, uh, two virtues colliding, and that this was such a time when when, as I say, I mean the the, the desire to be generous to the world ends up, in my view, overriding what should be a sense of justice for the people of Europe. Well, I want to talk about the ethics of immigration in a few minutes, because I think this is, it is a non-trivial ethical and, and even psychological problem to figure out what one thinks about this and how one can be justified in, in having a position here that isn't a suicide pact, essentially. But I, I, wanna, I want us to illustrate the suicide pact, because the details are surprising. Some of what you describe is fairly predictable. It's, it's of a piece with the masochism and self-doubt that, that postmodernism has spread, really, to the, to the limits of, of culture. So people will be familiar with, with some of the details, but there are some things that have happened 
that actually seem impossible. And, and to even speak about these events, I feel like I'm trafficking in lies and conspiracy theories even to speak of them. They're so incredible to me. I mean, this is one of those topics where we have to measure more or less every sentence against our listeners' capacity to wonder whether or not we have our facts wrong or, or we've lost our minds. And so I want to start the conversation with one of these extreme cases known as the, the Rotherham scandal. Because, I mean, because first of all, this is not, as far as I can tell, well known at all in the U.S. I think one of the reasons why it has been underreported is that it just sounds incredible, and, and the lack of credibility seems to rub off on anyone who would talk about it. So I, I just want our listeners to be prepared who haven't heard this story, that in a few moments you're going to wonder whether I'm talking to an Alex Jones character or some other nutcase. Now, I can say, unfortunately, I'm not. So Douglas, just take a couple of minutes to describe what happened in Rotherham. Sure. I mean, the, the context of this is that I I try to explain that absolutely everything that happened in the post-war period in Europe in terms of migration was not expected by anybody at all, really, and particularly not anybody in charge politically. And I say that because uh, in 2010, Angela Merkel gave a famous, at the time, speech in Potsdam in which she famously said that multiculturalism had failed and went on to say that it failed utterly and that particularly, she said, the people who came after the war, in the case of Germany, the guest workers mainly from Turkey, she said, we expected them to go home. And uh, they didn't. Well, of course they didn't. I mean, I mean, you know, looking back, why would you if you were leaving a, a poor developing country and had landed in a developed country? And, you know, why would you not then bring your wife? And why would you if you were with your wife not have children? And why would your children not go to the local school and so on and so forth? But it's just at a, a piece with everything that wasn't expected. And one of the things I say in the book when charting out the sort of brief history of this period in post-war European migration is that we, we got to a stage, the so-called multicultural era, where we, were, we, where we became good at talking about the good sides of it. I mean, at the, at the lowest, most sort of frivolous end, but actually very common, talking about cuisine, for instance the benefits we had in cuisine terms. And I mean, you know, it's understandable who would want to go back to the British food of the 1950s, you know. But, but it was also that the, 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 the negatives, anything bad at all started to become impossible to say because it was as if that might speak to the whole. Now, the most visceral and terrible example of this inability to talk to the bad things that happened emerged in different countries at different times. And in my telling, it emerged really first in the UK. And that was the scandal that subsequently became known as the Rotherham scandal. This was in the first decade of this century. Uh, I became aware of it and other journalists did because two groups of people really started to mention it. One were uh, uh, Sikh groups and others in the north of England who complained that their, as it were, girls from their community were being trafficked by Muslim men. And the other was that it started to become a focal point for some far-right elements in the UK. That is, particularly, and this was at a time when the British National Party, which is, you know, really a, a truly racist, uh, a neo-Nazi party, it, it, it's, it's now, thank goodness, pretty much moribund. But for a moment, they got almost a million votes in the UK, and there were two, to our shame, there were two members of the European Parliament for the British National Party. 
And uh, uh, they made enormous headway with this, or tried to. And uh, this was around 2004. And at the time, uh, there was actually a Channel 4 documentary that was meant to, uh, because some, you know, finally, some journalists took a, a, a real interest in this. And Channel 4 was meant to broadcast a documentary about this, what became known as the grooming gangs scandal. And it was actually stopped from broadcasting at the request of local police, among others, who feared that it would be a recruiting sergeant for the British National Party at forthcoming elections. So the, the documentary was, was uh, cancelled. Uh, it was subsequently shown after elections and at a time that was deemed to be less volatile. But um, that, was, that, that episode spoke to a sort of general uh, issue, which was that people really didn't want to know about these stories. These were, these were it, largely, it was thought, these were events that were happening in northern towns, you know, outside the sort of metropolitan London bubble. And so they were easier to ignore for a lot of people. But within the last decade, it became increasingly hard to ignore it. And eventually, uh, um, the government set up an official inquiry into what went wrong. And it turned out that in the town of Rotherham alone, up to 1,400 young girls had been systematically groomed and raped, often gang-raped, by gangs of um, uh, Muslim men, largely of Pakistani origin. And it was uh, the, the official inquiry into this, the government inquiry, found that the fear of accusations of racism, as it were, penetrated and prevented the police and local authorities acting on this, even when uh, uh, the local outcry was really very, very strong indeed. And it gets worse because, unfortunately, as we all know, uh, like the Catholic Church rape scandals and with all sorts of other similar cases, sadly, what happens is the first story breaks and then you learn the depth of the width of the problem. And this, in the last uh, few years, it's turned out that there were similar cases in towns across the north of England. and in places that people um, uh, thought to be more leafy and green. In Oxfordshire, most people think Oxford dreaming spires, etc., etc. In Oxfordshire, there was a case uh, five years ago now that came to trial, the Operation Bullfinch case, where numerous young uh, 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 white girls, again, often underage, have been trafficked for sex by uh, Muslim gangs. And I mean, the details that came out of that trial at the Old Bailey in London included, for instance, that one of the men branded one of the girls on her backside, I think, with an M for Mohammed, which was his name. He branded her as his property. And um, again, these, uh, 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 these cases, when they came to trial, they just, for the reasons that you and I feel awkward talking about it, uh, the British state, the British people felt awkward and wanted them not to be true. But this was just the same story in a way that then later emerged after, I mean, much faster between being covered up and coming out, but of um, similar events at, for instance, music festivals in Sweden in recent years, where it, it wasn't till Cologne on New Year's Eve 2015 that when that, that large-scale assaults happened, famously in front of the cathedral uh, on New Year's Eve, that, uh, that then the Swedes, this, uh, sort of having reported that, turned around and some of the press said, oh, yeah, didn't that happen at our music festivals in recent years? And everyone said, oh, yeah, that did. So 
it, it's it's a real scandal and it's an ongoing scandal. There are still many cases coming to trial. I think there's a lot more to find out. But it is just a, a symbol, a symptomatic example of this deep, deep discomfort of this whole discussion. Because if you or I had been asked to invent a sort of gross, you know, racist sort of favorite trope, it would be you know, well, they'd complain about people coming over here and raping our women. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons that it's, I, I, that it's been so little covered. I have a friend who's a journalist who, who mentioned to me just a few days ago that he, he went to interview some of the victims in Rotherham, actually, and he said he thought by now, as it were, their stories, they'd be talked out about their stories. They've been interviewed so many times. Not so. These, these uh, uh, women now, even now, have basically not had a chance to tell their story to the press or anyone else, because people just really don't want to know this stuff. And one of the points in my book is that, you know, everyone knows the benefits of, of some migration, but the downside bits are we're still not really willing to face up to. And I mean, that is it at its absolute most base and worst. I mean, again, this story just puts me at the absolute limit of what I find believable. The fact that this happened, I mean, I'm thinking now specifically about Rotherham. I mean, the, the, the numbers of people in this small town and the parents having to you know, appeal to the police for years and nothing comes of it, right? The fact that the authorities stood by and let this happen year yeah, after the, year. The, the, there, is, there, there are so many. I mean, I, I'd test your, your listeners' patience if I gave too many examples, but I mean, let me give you an example from uh, from the Oxfordshire case I mentioned, which is it's sort of in the UK, it's less well known than Rotherham, which has become really well known in the UK. But in the Oxfordshire case, there was a girl who, because quite often uh, the young girls uh, were bribed with drugs and things or plied with drugs and alcohol and so on. There's one case of a girl who was actually in a care home in Oxford and she was being uh, gang raped and she managed to escape and she got back to the children's home she was in meant to be being looked after by local authorities and she didn't have the money for the taxi that she had managed to hail to get her back to the care home and the care home staff thought that she was just playing up as it were uh she uh, the taxi driver took her back and she was gang raped again i mean it's sort of wholesale failure of you know, I think this is what it, why it particularly has begun to, or at least has for time, some people really speak to a greater failing because we'd like to think, I think, that young people, particularly young people in trouble in care homes and things, are actually the people the state should most look after and, and care for. And that, that at that stage, there's such a total lack of care that you could end up basically facilitating that uh, is, I think, horrifying. Well, yeah, and facilitating it at a certain point knowingly. I mean, so the, the thing that the situation you just described is a horrible misunderstanding on some level. But when you have the police knowing what's happening, but being unwilling to investigate for fear of being perceived as racist, right? By the way, yeah, by the way, that, 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 the interesting thing is some of your listeners may not know the background to this, but this, this, this also speaks to a fascinating thing, again, which doesn't come from nowhere. The police didn't have that fear for no reason. Uh, in the 1990s, the early 90s, there was a famous uh, uh, racist murder in Britain of a black teenager called Stephen Lawrence who was, who was murdered on the streets. And 
he his killers weren't brought to trial for a very long time and one of the failings undoubtedly in the Lawrence case was uh, the presumption by the police that it had been a a black on black gang uh, uh, murder and um this was encouraged by various people this perception and uh, it, when there was a report in the late 90s into this the the, the McPherson report it was called it found that it found that the local police were 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 and the police in the UK in general were quote institutionally racist and this um label um it was certainly uh, 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 i would have said accurate in some cases i think it was far too broad a claim to make about the british police as a whole but it meant that in the years immediately afterwards the police in britain would have been even more adamant than they would have been before not to tread onto things that you know would would embed that or take them back to having that reputational problem again. So all these things are, you know, problems built on problems. Yeah. What is illustrative and and perhaps even diagnostic about this case for me is that, and and again, it really strains credulity on every level, is that the fact that it's possible, the fact that you have really a whole society being willing to just eat this horror year after year and do nothing about it, that suggests to me that other things are possible and, and this kind of great unraveling that you sound like a scaremonger to worry about is possible. I mean, so, I mean, what freedom wouldn't you be willing to forfeit if you're willing to let your daughters and your neighbor's daughters by the thousands get gang raped for years? It absolutely beggars belief. I mean, another example was that during the same period that the Rotherham scandal was starting to break was when the British police admitted that there had been certainly some scores of uh, murders uh, in the UK, which had almost certainly been so-called honour murders, honour crimes, which the police hadn't really bothered to investigate because they were they were community matters. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's all a part of a stumbling through a period which as I say in the book, I mean, we were just having to improvise during. Yeah. And, and the, the interesting wrinkle here that we'll, we'll get to, and this is, will be quite familiar to our listeners, but that the hypocrisy here on the left is fairly breathtaking because you, you have the, the same people who are most concerned about women's rights and gay rights and even, as you describe, even more niche concerns, you know, now transgender rights and getting your pronouns straight. I mean, these are the kind of the highest moral priorities at this moment. These are the very people who seem quite happy to import millions of people into their society for whom the very notion of women's rights and gay rights and, and to say nothing of transgender rights is not only foreign, but anathema. There's a double think here everyone is paying a massive penalty for, even, even the, and this is a point you also make in the book, when you look at the most vulnerable people in these immigrant communities, I mean, so the liberal Muslims and the gay Muslims and the, the apostates and the Muslim reformers, the people who threaten their lives, right, who make their lives an actual safety concern from one moment to the next, are not by and large, the fascists and the neo-Nazis and the bigots and the xenophobes. It's the intolerant Muslims who are being brought into the same community. It's, it's a subject that's incredibly disheartening because it suggests that um, 
that there are many other things going on, doesn't it? I mean, it suggests, for instance, that there are people who are perfectly willing to cover up atrocity, really, in order that their own community doesn't have any negative publicity. By the way, I mean, that's, that's normal in most communities, I think, that, that you don't want your dirty linen, as it were, washed in public. But there's, there's obviously a greater tolerance of that going on. I mean, I mean, you might think that, you know, a small amount of embarrassment might be not worth airing in public, but, you know, considerable numbers of gang rapes might be serious enough to actually think it's worth having it out. And then there is the, to my mind, supplemental problem in a way of the people who basically think that this is a story about white working class girls and they don't find much sympathy for them, to put it at its strongest. By the way, I mean, just a, I mean, it's a very, very slightly analogous but example, but I was following with great interest the um, case of this American student who died uh, uh, last week, who was brutalized in North Korea after trying to take down a post, Otto Warmbier. The bit of this whole horrible story that in a way was was most striking um, was the, 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 I mean, it's not as if the North Korean authorities behave differently from one would expect, but that there was this glee on parts of the left, on Huffington Post and Salon and so on, when he got arrested and detained and then brutalized and tortured and beaten as it turned out to death, because he was a sort of beneficiary of white privilege and ha-ha, I can't, it, was, it was both Huffington Post and Salon, you know, ha-ha, he's just learnt the limits of white privilege. And you just think, how much, how much sickness do you have to have as a human being to respond to these stories with this kind of political um, reflex that actually, I, I mean, overrides all humanity? And that's really, I think, one of the, the, the less spoken about things in this whole Rotherham sort of thing was this kind of, these are white working class trash, you know, not people I, I know sort of thing, and, and therefore not, not deserving of your pity or concern even. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's especially odious when you reflect on the fact that some of these girls were as young as 11, right? Yeah. It is mind boggling. I, I, I saw that piece, and I think it was the Huffington Post on um, the North Korea incident. And it is, yeah, the idea that his white privilege caused him to think that, t that he could tear down a propaganda poster with impunity and, and that he got his just desserts for, for that sort of arrogance. It is wrecking of one's hopes for humanity to, to, yes. to see that, that sentiment yes. uh, even articulated. I want to talk a minute about the ethics of immigration because, I mean, this is, so this is the other side of the equation. This is the felt moral imperative, which I certainly feel, to respond generously to the unluckiest people on earth. This really comes to the, the moral indefensibility of good luck, right? I mean, so like when I search my mind, I can't find any way to argue that I deserve my good luck. I'm extraordinarily lucky. And among the many reasons I could list, you know, one that comes to mind is I'm extraordinarily lucky not to have been born a woman in Afghanistan. Now, to what can I ascribe that good luck? Well, it's just pure good luck. I didn't earn it. There's nothing I imagine I did in my past life or in utero 
to earn that good luck. And so when I think of the unlucky people who happen to be women in Afghanistan or in really anyone in Syria at the moment, I can't justify this ethical disparity. And, and so this is the, just the sheer fact of the matter that I, I seem to have emerged in part of the world where I was simply given citizenship and where good luck and opportunity just more or less grows on trees. And you have millions of people born elsewhere into circumstances that are, are about as pointlessly wretched as any in human history. So the question is, how does one live a moral life in light of this kind of disparity? And how do we build societies in light of this fact that, that good luck has not been spread equally over the surface of the earth? and societies that are, that are organized around a moral vision that we can defend. And I'm happy to have you give your answer to that question, but it clearly can't be. I mean, I, this is the, the answer that I think we want to close the door to, and, and this is an answer that some people have tried to defend. It can't be that we have a moral obligation to let as many people as possible move into our society. I mean, in such numbers, that it becomes scarcely better than the societies they're leaving, right? It can't yes, be some, some kind of principle of, of osmosis, which just creates the lowest common denominator of all possible fates on Earth. And that's something that is defended by you know, essentially someone like Mariam Namazi, who I had on the podcast, to the, the absolute frustration of every listener. The problem of open borders, perhaps you want to touch it, but it seems to me that can't be a solution. At some point, you are regulating the flow at, at a minimum. Yes, of course. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm so glad you framed in those terms, because that's obviously how most, you know, decent people in the West feel these days. I mean, we don't feel that we've not only won the lottery of life, but deserve it. You know, we, um, we know that it's luck. We all have friends who most of us have friends who have been born without some of that luck and have acquired it. And, and so that also makes us feel more aware of the luck and, um, and, and more unable to explain, you know, what we should do and why we should keep anyone else out from sharing it. And I, I think that one of the bits that is, is least focused in on all this is, is the long-term point. And it's one you touched on there about, about the open borders thing. You see, for, for short-term reasons, one could understand why uh, uh, we have the views we do. Uh, for long-term reasons, uh, um, it's inexplicable that, for instance, you would think that you could import, as Angela Merkel did in 2015 alone, an extra up to 2% of the population in a single year, and for it not to have long-term uh, effects. I recount towards the end of my book um, a, a conversation with a great supporter of Angela Merkel's in the German uh, Bundestag, and it made me hit on on one of the thoughts which I express in the book about this, which is that we seem to think at this stage in our uh, uh, liberal democracies that that our our liberal democracies are so appealing and so strong that basically if you bring the world in, it comes up to speed with us almost immediately. Or as I say in one point in the book, you know, that, that to just walk into Europe is to immediately breathe the air of 
St. Paul and Voltaire. And it seems highly unlikely to me, to put it no stronger, that everybody who walks into Europe uh, arrives at the same point that we are at in regards to our views on religion, our views on on all sorts of rights questions and others. Uh, it's, just, it's just very implausible to me. But then then the idea that uh, um, changes, and to me at any rate, I say that, that it's, it's, we should understand our societies to be more like a fragile ecosystem where you can't just endlessly tear things up and put new things in and expect the whole thing to look the same. It's much more likely that, that it'll look very different and that therefore you should, you should take care with it and take care with the thing you've inherited in order that you, you pass it on, at least you pass on something that isn't, you know, a grand version of the Balkans. And that, I suppose, brings me to the other analogy, which I at one point hit on. Some people would find it uncomfortable because, of course, so many of the people coming into Europe come on boats, and so many of the boats, thanks to the smugglers, are very rickety vehicles indeed. But I say, what, what, what if Europe is not this massive liner that can just keep taking people on, but a boat itself, which, which has to decide how many people it can take on before it itself capsizes. And I think that this is something we have not given sufficient thought to. And of course, one of the reasons is that it isn't a science, is it? I mean, it's, it's not as if there was a, a, um, a graph one could produce to show the point at which people become uncomfortable about where their society is going, the point at which the welfare stretch is too great, etc, etc. It's just something you get feelings about. And that's why I have one chapter on what I call early warning sirens. Uh, various people who went off across Europe in recent decades, different people, a left-wing feminist there, a, a, a gay uh, activist there, and, and the people who just went off saying, hang on, I'm, I'm starting to get nervous about the future. And um, uh, again, I mean, we, we didn't really listen to those because we, we kept on to this idea that it doesn't matter because when people get to here, they'll realize how great it is and they'll become just like us. This intuition is also propped up by arguments in favor of immigration that you dispatch fairly early in the book. And they're really, there's really a set of myths in at least on certain points about immigration. Aging society um, and all that, yeah. Yeah, perhaps take a, a minute or two to talk to those because people have this sense that this is not only in some sense inevitable but but necessary there's no alternative for europe you have a this senescent continent that needs workers uh, what else could be done yes i i uh, i go into that in in uh, some depth early in the book just to sort of dispatch them because during the 2015 crisis, when we were thinking so little about all the things we should, should have been thinking about in depth and a lot, I heard these recurring themes that I'd heard for all my life about uh, mass migration, which was that uh, there was... Uh, and these were all, by the way, justifications that always came after something that would have happened anyway. So you got the sense that it wasn't as if we were arguing for something and then it would happen. We were Something happened and then we had to find an explanation that kind of justified the actions. And so I mean, I give the example, for instance, I mean, there's the, obviously the economic argument. And it, it, on that, uh, I, I mean, surveyed a lot of the literature, if not all of it. Uh, you know, I, I say that 
at best, you can say the economic argument is is you know fifty fifty. That some about fifty percent of studies say that there's a, a great benefit. About fifty percent say there's a great negative. Most of it kind of evens out. And actually, in the UK, at any rate, the, the most persuasive study to date found that over a fifteen year period, uh, the, the the migrants into the UK had had taken out uh, something like a hundred fourteen billion pounds more in benefits than they put down in taxes. And of course, you know, everyone can tell that because of course, I mean, the, the deal with the welfare state is meant to be that you, you pay in and, you know, and everyone's going to have a hard time maybe at some point, or some people will at some point, or, you know, you'll pay in, but your cousin won't. And, and they, they benefit, you know, when they were on a bad time, they benefit and so on. And of course, that's going to work out more evenly than say, if you were a family who just moved in and needed to use the welfare state a great deal. And, and so you have to sort of tell tell fibs about it. And that's one of the ones we have told is that it's, it's just endlessly be- economically beneficial, whereas in actual fact, the economic benefit most of the time accrues to the incomer, not, not to the society. And then you get the ones like an aging population. We heard this from Angela Merkel's government, you know, we're a graying aging population in Germany. I mean, you know, first of all, by the way, getting old isn't, isn't such a bad thing. I mean, I'm, I'm glad we don't die in our 40s anymore. You know, I mean, it's so if you are an aging population and you need to deal with the get, keeping yourself in the standards to which you've become accustomed, uh, I, I lay out a whole set of things you could do, like Japan has done and others have done to try to uh, get used to that. You can raise the retirement age, you can find a better work balance for the over 60s and so on. But there's a whole load of things that you do uh, before deciding that the next generation of Germans should be from Eritrea. And um, there's a whole set of things like that. And then, of course, the diversity argument, which is that even if it doesn't make us richer, um, uh, mass migration makes us much more interesting, and that the culture of Europe is kind of boring, and that the culture of Bach and Shakespeare and Goethe and, uh, and Dante, you know, needs, um, you know, a lot of, of in, input from the rest of the world, something which is, I've often said, a one-way system. I mean, no one says we need to inject some Welsh culture into uh, um, Pakistan, you know. Uh, it's always a one-way thing. And of course, again, it builds on a decency. I mean, who doesn't want to have some knowledge of the world and of the world's cultures? You know, it, it would be mad to deprive ourselves of it. But of course, the fact is, is that you don't keep benefiting the more people come in. It may be that you have a point at which you've had enough, uh, uh, um, you know, immigration from a particular culture and that, that the benefits don't keep on giving. And then finally, I suppose, there's a point about th- 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 that you make that that it's as if, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, all of these things don't matter, even if they're not true. It doesn't matter because it's just going to happen anyway, because this is globalization. And this, to some extent, is one of the worst arguments of all, because it, it makes us have to be totally fatalistic and just take everything as it happens, because there is no other option. And I think, by the way, that anything where, as I give lots of examples in the, in the book of polls and, and public opinion attitudes, anything where there is a concern that is just repeatedly the top concern of the public to keep on as a political class saying, well, it's just going to happen anyway. There's nothing you can do about it. It seems to me, among many other things, to be deeply disenfranchising. Yeah. And it's interesting, the, the example of Japan you mentioned, because Japan is, by comparison, a closed society. I mean, they make it very difficult to, to immigrate, if I understand this correctly. And that is an attitude of 
kind of maintaining the purity of their culture for which they haven't come into very much criticism. I mean, I know there, there's, there's a sense that there's a kind of a racism issue in Japan, but it's not something that you hear the world crying foul over year after year. We don't treat them like apartheid South Africa or anything. And um, you know, there's a recognition uh, that, that it's the legitimate attitude to take. But why would it be legitimate in Japan and totally legitimate in Europe? By the way, I mean, I'm not for zero immigration. I just think we should be a lot slower with it and certainly not do it on the rate of recent years and also be far choosier about the type of immigration we want in the future. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not for zero immigration at all either. I mean, I, that's something that perhaps I'll spell out in a minute, but I, I, have, I have spelled out several times on this podcast. And I, you know, your example of the food in, in the 50s in, in the UK, I mean, I, that's a little before my time, but I can say even <laughs> as recently as 1980, it was, it was pretty grim. And there's, I think there's <laughs> no one who can begrudge the influx of good Indian restaurants and, and falafel into um, the UK. That was a moral emergency of its own sort. <laughs> how is Eastern Europe different from Western Europe in this respect and how they've responded to the migrant crisis? That's, it's a very important question, and um, one I go into in some depth in the book, that the, uh, most, almost everything that I'm describing in this book is about what's happening in Western Europe with migration. And most of it if not all of it, is highly relevant to the American debate that's going on at present. Because it seems to me that we are just very advanced down this argument for, for the worse uh, that, that, that America is uh, starting off on as well, although has gone some way on as well. The, the, the issues I cite, particularly the civilizational, societal, cultural malaise that I describe in the book, um, including the sense of what I describe as tiredness, an existential civilizational tiredness does not emerge in the same way in Eastern Europe. Uh, so that, for instance, during the height of the crisis in 2015, a crisis, by the way, I should stress now, not only was it going on for years beforehand, but it's still going on. You know, on an average weekend, 10,000 people come into one of the Italian islands alone. So this isn't just a 2015 thing. But during the height of the crisis in 2015, uh, uh, whilst Western Europe was, was, was racking itself with its guilt and with its, it, what its responsibilities to the world should be, uh, the Slovakian uh, uh, um, prime minister, who's a, um, who's a left-winger, and uh, the Hungarian prime minister, who is certainly a right-winger, uh, uh, were as one on the issue that they would not take the migrants, they would not take quotas, and agreed in particular that they didn't want to take Muslim migrants into their countries. And this, whether you agree with it or not, is a very striking um, uh, uh, um, piece of unanimity in Eastern Europe. Now, there are lots of reasons uh, you could give for it. Uh, but if it, if it comes down to one, and I've spoken to many people and traveled, let's say, all across those bits of Europe as well, if you could get it down to one thing, I would say it's this. They Western Europe has, to my mind, like North America, uh, basically t completely lost what a famous Spanish philosopher described as the tragic sense of life. We, we, we think that not only were we born in this luck, but this luck will continue forever. 
and it's a baby boomer thing but a post baby boomer thing too and it's it it's basically it basically can't foresee or imagine what for most of human history has been foreseeable and imaginable and eastern europe as i say is a great generalization of the situation which is allowed in much more complexity in the book but the eastern europe basically has retained the tragic sense of life and it knows that even the things you care about most in all the world even your holy places uh can be trampled upon and ruined utterly by people who are unworthy of them and they saw that in the 1930s and again in the 40s and again in the 50s and they were swept away from one direction and then the other direction they were swept again and after surviving those hurricanes i think they are far more wary maybe overwary you could say I, I, or you could say appropriately wary of the huge gamble that the rest of europe is taking with its collective security and identity yeah and that's a a condition of being oblivious to the tides of history that I that I'm very familiar with personally because it really many people in the US I think share this this condition and this memory well, it really was not until September 11th 2001 that I realized that we were still living in history you know the, where the wheels can come off in any sense and so it's it's sobering to realize that it it's possible to not see that there's any significant implication to anything that is happening because, you know, your iPhone will continue to work until the end of the world and Facebook is will be here forever. And Absolutely. And as I say, and the sort of, you know, um, fatalism about the, 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 the differences or at least a lack of interest of the differences between things. You know, I say, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I might do Christianity, she might do Islam, he does yoga. Uh, why be interested in the differences? Uh, isn't that isn't that a, a, a bigoted? And um, and the lack of interest leads, you know, is a, is a self fulfilling thing, obviously. So, how would you compare the situation in the UK now to the situation in France or the the rest of the of Western Europe? Well, um, in some ways, it's all the same. I mean, they're all bits of the same continuum. I had a very interesting conversation some time ago with a Swedish MP who after a recent uh, uh, um, blow up in the media over the rape stats in Sweden, you know, we ended up having a conversation. It was really interesting. I, I, was, I said to her at one point, you know, I mean, just, uh, just take it from what happened here in Britain. It's much better if you, if you own up to the facts or try to find out about the facts now than that you continue to do this kind of nothing to see here. Let's protect our national pride sort of thing. And and as I say, to that extent, there are all sorts of very unpleasant things that are just the same story playing out in different ways. In other ways, the differences are uh, uh, important. Uh, I've always said that, in a way, I think that France, like America, could come out of all this better placed than other countries. I mean, I give the example. I mean, if, 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 if you put any, any other country in Europe through what France has been through in the last two years, and imagine, you know, their most strident secular voices all being massacred in a morning, and then a priest being massacred, having his throat slit at the altar while saying mass, and 
you know, a truck mowing down 80 people and killing them and injuring many more and and a night of terror in the capital and endless car bombs and and stabbings and so on, all in the name of the same, you know, ideology and religion. I think other countries might have reacted worse by now. And I think that to that extent, France, like America, is got a certain residual strength from the fact that the Republic, you know, can be this strong, very clear, and at times necessarily stern um, uh, um, thing. And uh, that that France, for instance, has been able to weather it partly because of that. This is an assault on the Republic. You know, it's harder to sort of break break the society down in the fragmenting way that has happened elsewhere. But that said, you know, one of the most one of the questions I've got asked whilst I've been, you know, traveling across Europe from this book, every time I speak to any official or spoke to any official, people always asked and journalists still ask, where has the integration thing worked, uh, you know, better than the other? And I say at one point in the book, you know, that, that one of the things that we used to say about this years ago was, you know, look, the French models worked really well. And then the you know, Bonlieu lit up and and then they had the, all their troubles. And so people turned away from looking at the French integration model. And they said, maybe the British one, you know, is the one. And then the Anglo-Saxon model, you know, didn't stop, you know, race riots in Oldham in 2001 didn't stop the London underground bombings in 2005 and hasn't stopped the spate of terror attacks we've had, you know, three Islamist attacks in 10 weeks uh, recently. And so we say, oh, maybe not the Anglo-Saxon one. Then you look to Scandinavia and you think, well, it's all looked good up there, but now it's kind of going rancid. And one of the things I said, maybe it's not that we haven't nixed the integration thing. Maybe it is that we are in the middle of finding out that we just can't do integration when it's at this speed with the people that we have had. And this is, of course, a very uncomfortable uh, um, suggestion, but it is maybe we actually can't digest this. Maybe it's not the fault of our digestion system. And there's a considerable distance between the thinking of ordinary people in Europe at this moment and that of their leaders. What have you gleaned about public opinion in Europe? Now. Oh, let me give you, and there are so many uh, uh, really striking opinion polls I give in the book, which, which show, by the way, um, a migration in one direction only in public opinion. I may have said to you before that, I mean, you know, n- nobody says, I used to really worry about Islamic extremism, and now I don't. That's such a devastating sentence, because it's, I, you can't even imagine our detractors demurring on that point. And um, and and it's, uh, you see this in opinion polls, where even even in a country like Germany, where the people are really most uh, um, most for obvious reasons, sort of wanting to be shown to be and seen to be tolerant, and indeed being tolerant, you see the the movement of opinion in only one direction. By the way, whenever a poll comes out, I give some examples in the book, some of which are rather funny, almost. You know, uh, 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 whenever a poll comes out saying, you know, X percent of the public, you know. They're worried about Islam and think it's connected to violence or something. You know, the opinion pages are always filled up with how can we correct the public's opinion? <laughs> Not having any massacres for a few days <laughs> would be one way. You know? That's a start. How about how about not having a massacre this week? Um, but instead, there is this reflex reaction still that it's our response to it, not the thing that is it, it, that needs to be rectified. 
And uh, I, I give toward the end of the book one example, which is really, really stark. Earlier this year, when your American listeners, among others, will remember that the US president called for a temporary travel ban on, on people from seven very unstable countries, all of which are Muslim uh, majority countries. I mean, you couldn't move anywhere in polite society, as we used to call it, uh, uh, and find anyone who thought this was anything other than a Nazi, evil, terrible policy, and so on. And without making any comment on, on, on the policy, what, what struck me as more interesting was that, that at the same time, a, a, an opinion poll was being carried out across Europe asking a far harder question than the one that Donald Trump raised. Uh, they were asked not whether a temporary travel suspension should occur with people from seven unstable Muslim-majority countries, but whether they agreed or disagreed with the statement that they didn't want one more Muslim in their country. And in um, eight out of the 10 European countries, the majority of the publics agreed with that statement. They wanted zero more Muslim immigration. And that included majorities in France and in Germany. And one of the only two countries in Europe where that was not a majority opinion was in mine, in, in Great Britain where only 47% of the public agreed with that. And, uh, and by the way, I mean, this was in February, this was published. So again, I, I think it's unlikely that that number has gone down. I would have thought we'd probably gone over the 50% mark after recent weeks. And this speaks to one of the things I, I, I try to do in this book, and, and which I don't know if I will get any thanks for, as it were, but you don't expect it, of course, do you? But but that I try to, to, to meld the conversation the public is having with the reality, including the political reality, because I, at any rate, find it very concerning that this divide has opened up between what is able to be said in public by, as it were, a normal mainstream Democrat or Republican uh, or Labour or you know, Conservative in the UK and, and the rest of the public. And that Unless politicians find a way to bridge that gap in a decent, you know, fashion, then then they lose the public, and uh, which is, I think, a, a development which is is ongoing, has been for some time. Yeah, and obviously, a great concern here is the pendulum swing toward right wing populism that one is worried about, and and a kind of violent backlash of the sort that we, we saw a single instance of in, in London just a couple of weeks ago, where, where the, the same style of attack that, that ISIS has advertised to its fans it was used against a London mosque and where a non-Muslim mowed down a crowd of Muslims outside their mosque. And I mean, I think it's not too hard to imagine that we could see much more of that sort of thing if the political reality isn't appropriately addressed. Yes, it's terrifying, this picture, because, I mean, I give, a, I give examples throughout the book of the way in which this was, this was sort of always the way. I mean, the public opinion divide from the politicians was, was consistent in Europe throughout these decades. You know, what they did, what the political class did in terms of mass immigration to Europe was always unpopular with the public. And I give various examples, one of which will be familiar to many people in Europe, maybe less so in America, but a famous conservative politician, Enoch Powell, gave a, a famous, if notorious speech in 1968 that became known as the Rivers of Blood speech. And he was sacked from the conservative um, 
uh, shadow cabinet for the speech, but he predicted great um, disasters in the year, years ahead if, if uh, uh, immigration wasn't restricted. And um, uh, in fact, uh, opinion polls uh, showed that three quarters of the general public in Britain agreed with Enoch Powell. And uh, 70% believed that, uh, that, Ed Heath, that Ted Heath, the Conservative leader, had been wrong to sack him. I mean, various people, including the very you know, liberal left uh, uh, conservative uh, former deputy prime minister, Michael Heseltine, said that he remembered it at the time and said that if, if Powell had stood for the leadership of the Conservative Party after that speech uh, and then stood for election in the country, he would have won by a landslide. So this was always the case. I mean, there was, it, this was always done in spite of what the public wanted. And the, the dire prognostications begin to look possible when something like the attack you referred to the other day in uh, London occurs. I'm, um, we've all said for a long time that the sort of backlash you know, thing is used as a, as a way for, among other things, people to stop the spotlight being turned on elements in their own community. And that's certainly been the case. It's certainly been a tactical thing that certain particularly radical Muslim groups have deployed in order to just, just get attention off them in the aftermath of any attack. But, but now we just get this, in some ways, even more demoralizing than the Islamist attacks. The idea that the idea we could, we could get into a tit for tat situation, we don't know much about the the Finsbury Park attacker yet. Um, and I'd be surprised, by the way, if we discover that he, you know, went to a church where they told you to mow down Muslims with a van and, and so on. And if we do discover that, by the way, I mean, there will not be anyone in the Anglican communion or in the country as a whole who says, hang on, don't, 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 uh, don't focus on that church. You know, you've got to understand what they're saying in context and so on. I think we'll get very little of that. You bring up a, a topic now that that is um, very close to my, my immediate concern with respect to how I spent the last 24 hours. And it's the, the level of dishonesty among so-called moderate Muslims on these issues. As much as the rise of a group like ISIS, really, I mean, this is not, this, this will sound hyperbolic, but it really isn't. The guaranteed dishonesty on these points that we get from prominent so-called moderate Muslims and their liberal enablers or their leftist enablers, this has made me despair of the future of Islam and its integration with the West as much as anything, as much as the rather well-demonstrated propensity for suicide bombing among Muslim extremists. Because it's just, I mean, the lies never stop. And so what, what's happened in the last 24 hours for me is I, I had a podcast I did with our mutual friend, Majid Nawaz, and people have taken a 60 seconds of audio from that, that podcast that has been carefully edited to make me seem like not only do I oppose immigration, but I, I, I essentially am in favor of something akin to ethnic cleansing, right? And Majid is simply acquiescing to these sentiments. And they, they have spread this around Twitter, and that now it's people like Reza Aslan and, and Rula Jabril and, and oh, God. Yeah. people with significant platforms. And what is patently obvious is that these people know that they're lying. I mean, at this point, I, you know, there's so much history here, particularly with someone like Reza Aslan. You mean the famous Hindu-phobe Reza Aslan? 
Yeah, that's right, yes. The cannibal now who uh, ate human brains to uh, prove he belonged on television and then <laughs> promptly got fired. He, he, these, these people, that, but, that, but I mean, Sam, I mean, I have to say you're, if I can say so, you're far too understanding of this, or at least overanalyzing of what they're doing. They just want to win. It's actually more despicable than that. It's not, because what I know in the case of someone like Reza Aslan is that they, they know that calling someone like me and certainly someone like Majid a racist or, some, or a fan of genocide, which is this is, this, is the, this is how extreme the slander is, broadcasting this to a, a Muslim community that is otherwise completely unfamiliar with my work and, and, and just so incurious about the context that they would hear any call for an awareness of context as just a patent dodge of the genocidal commitment that I'm now trying to hide, right? They know that this raises my security concerns, and, it raise, and calling Majid and Uncle Tom raises his security concerns. And these are people who celebrated his inclusion on the Southern Poverty Law Center anti-Muslim extremist list. Uh, and that's actually the thing that has prompted this recent attack on us, because Majid just announced that he's suing the Southern Poverty Law Center for obviously libelous and crazy inclusion in this list. And our friend Ayan Hirsi Ali was included there as well. And the list itself is repugnant. But in any case, these people are actually trying to make it dangerous to talk about these things. I want to pose this to you because I, I know you, you live with this same set of concerns, both for your own security and the security of other people who are doing this work. And I, I'm wondering how you decide who to engage on these issues, because you actually sit down and debate people who strike me as totally beyond the pale in terms of their level of dishonesty. I mean, someone like Mehdi Hassan or Tariq Ramadan, or even the extreme case, someone like Anjum Chowdhury, who's can, there's even no, no pretense of moderation there. He's a, he is just a terrorist <laughs> recruiter. I mean, these are people, for instance, who I don't think I would have on the podcast because I can't imagine any kind of productive conversation happening. So how do you decide this for yourself? And, and do you have any regrets on the basis of any of these meetings? Or, is this, or do we just have different jobs? No, I suppose just different jobs. I mean, uh, if somebody else, as it were, you would make the invitation to somebody to be on your podcast, whereas these debates you refer to in my case, other people saying we've got this person we need or would like you to, you know, counter them in public. And so I sort of think partly for just for the purposes of political hygiene, I think it's necessary to do that and to show up. And I'm always very sorry there aren't more people who want to do that. Uh, and, you know, it's not only an unpleasant job, you know, it can also be fun. I mean, I was delighted the other week in Cambridge when Tariq Ramadan you referred to there painted himself against my uh, friend uh, Fritz Borkestein, a very distinguished liberal Dutch politician, painted himself as the great uh, proponent of, of, of European liberalism. And I had, was so pleased to be able to stand up and say to the chamber, you know, well, it's very nice to see Tarek, you know, portraying himself as the embodiment of, Dutch, of, of, of European liberalism. Of course, a real liberal wouldn't find it so hard to condemn stoning, you know. And it's just great seeing him squirm as he then tries to pretend that the video, which anyone can see on the internet of him saying that with Sarkozy, you know, didn't happen. <laughs> so, so it's not only, you know, bad, bad news, but um, no, the specific thing on, on, on that, on your, as it were, the detractors thing is that 
I think there are several things. One is they say, I mean, these people really want to win and they want to win mainly for basically religious doctrinal reasons. And often the far left commentators who attack you, it's basically a sort of religious kink they've got themselves. And, um, and I mean, there are several things to be said about it. One is, of course, that one could play the sort of Muslim Brotherhood trick on them. Occasionally, I I feel like doing that, saying, "Look, if you think you know Sam Harris, you know, who to my mind, I mean, you're here, but uh, but pretend you're not from him. I mean, to my mind, is one of the most liberal sort of yogaish, meditative, you know, West Coast liberal types I've got in my address book anyway. But that might be <laughs> that might be because of my address book. But you know, if you think Sam Harris is actually gearing up for genocide and is you know, the embodiment of all that is hateful in the world. You know, you should see what comes down the road. And um, I do, I do sometimes, I mean, I think it's, as I say, it's too Muslim Brotherhood a trick to pull off too often. But I think, I think that is worth stating to these people in a way. It's possible, uh, of course, that they know that to some degree. And they want to, rather like Russia and uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, make the conflict to be between them and ISIS, you know, as it were, that they would like it if they could clarify this debate so that there weren't nuanced and thoughtful and informed people. And it was only them with their very radical uh, views uh, facing down, you know, um, people who didn't have any of the nuance, didn't have any of the, uh, uh, of the care in the discussion. And I sometimes think that is the purpose. They want to pick, pick you off for that reason. But yeah, they're also, um, I mean, I get this all the time in the wake of the Finsbury Park attack, uh, uh, three Muslim organizations, all pretty radical, one of which is just a, a front for the Khomeinist uh, cause. Uh, uh, on, uh, on BBC, were allowed to describe me as a hate preacher. And uh, the BBC subsequently had to publish a, broad, a broadcast and apology to me. I saw that. Now, how, how did you extract that? Was that? Is that a manifestation of the difference between our libel laws? Because that, that struck me as a, a surprising moment uh, and of a sort that I have never experienced myself and never really pursued with much energy because it, it seems so hopeless in, in the U.S. to do that. Yeah, it may be that. Um, um, I mean, I just think that, again, it's, it's necessary to hold, hold the line on facts. And, you know, if I if I did call for people to drive vans into crowds of people exiting mosques, then um, then I should be called a hate preacher. But 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 otherwise, it's a very striking and very serious accusation to make that suggests that instead of being allowed to voice my concerns and 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 so on, I'm actually in recruiting people. I'm an Anjem Chowdhury like figure recruiting people for reverse jihad, as it were. And um, if it was, becomes a statement of fact, as it were, permissible on the national broadcasting channel, then that's sort of a different thing as well. I, um, it's, of course, it is the same thing. It's still people making the accusation, but I, I felt that a, a line had been crossed there, as I think Majid did. And, and frankly, you know... Um, if I was a uh, a het up young Muslim in parts of my country, uh, and I was feeling, you know, gun ready, uh, knowing that the BBC was helping various pretty hardcore groups 
to uh, basically focus the the, the the gun on me doesn't make me feel um, generous towards any of this. It's extraordinarily irresponsible. But again, maybe they, but again, maybe they just want that. Maybe it is that. I've, I've, I've often, often wondered that. I mean, if you have a sort of... We, we've seen this with Charlie Hebdo and things, haven't we? I mean, the, basically, you know, the people go into the offices and they gun a load of people down for blasphemy. And then really the hit is what comes after, which is that you don't have to do it again very much because everyone's learned the lesson. And other people can come along and kind of say, well, you know, uh, for health and safety reasons, we'd rather not host you tonight. You know, and it becomes in the same way. I mean, I mean, I mean these, people, the, the, these people are riding on the coattails of the violent ones. And maybe, that, maybe they're very comfortable with that, actually. Maybe they're very happy with making people like you and me feel that we have, uh, you know, the people with guns after us. And maybe they, that's just their comfortable way of winning. You know, they've got, they've got the, they don't need to know them, but they happen to have the advantage of having a paramilitary wing on their side. I'm sorry to say, I think it is that cynical and unethical. I, I mean, there, there's certain people who are just oblivious, perhaps, and there are no doubt liberals, you know, non-Muslim liberals who just have some form of Stockholm syndrome and they're, they're, not, they're not very thoughtful about what forces are at play here. But I'm confident that many of the principal people are quite happy to increase the security concerns of, their, oh, yeah. of the people they're, they're pretending to merely criticize. If, if I, I mean, I've, I've been very critical of some of the people you mentioned earlier and some of my debating partners. I'm very careful not to stand in front of them at things or say on social media, he is a jihadist. He is exactly the same as ISIS. I'm very careful about it. And it's not just for libel reasons. It's that I think there is a clear difference between some of the people I'm an opponent of and some of the people I'm an opponent of who are jihadists. But if I did it now, those people would also have a legitimate follow-up one, which is, you know, what if Douglas is lining us up in that way? And that's why I wouldn't do it. Among, long as the libel thing, and now that we know that, you know, you could get a guy like this, this crazy, awful man from Wales driving a van into a crowd of, you know, people leaving mosques, you'd be doubly careful in that environment. Oh, Surely. Yeah. yeah. On the, the single occasions, I mean, I think I can count on two fingers the, the number of times this has happened in 15 years of engaging these issues. On the single occasions where I have misstated one of my true enemy's position, however slightly, right, just given the, a, a slightly off sense of what this person had been arguing for or, or believed, I have publicly apologized immediately. Right, and well, yet these people never do yeah, that. Well, it's it's worse than that. They have never, in many cases, they have never attacked me for a view that I actually hold. I mean, they have a hundred percent record of lying about what my views actually are, and this is so it's it's asymmetric warfare. You have people who basically have no security concerns, right, because they're not worried about atheists and reform Muslim reformers lining up to kill them, right, and who have no scruples going after people who have exquisite security concerns and who are playing by really the, the most scrupulous rules of, of intellectual discourse. It's just, it's completely asymmetric and it's, and there's no sign of a change. And I, I want to just, I, I know we're coming up against a hard stop for you, Douglas. You're going to give a 
a speech somewhere in London. You are you are the hardest working heretic in in uh, in the UK at the moment. But I want to. I just want to ask you about this encounter between Piers Morgan and Tommy Robinson, which you must have seen. Which, well, first let me just ask you: Is there any daylight between you and and Robinson on these issues? Because I he has been so well slimed by his opponents that you know I don't know what to think about him. I've never met him or or dealt directly with him, but he's you know he comes to me just bathed in in opprobrium. Feel free to describe what you think of him, but I want to I want to I want to say something about Morgan's performance there because it it struck me as one of the most shameful examples of sanctimonious bullying I've ever witnessed. I, I haven't actually seen it. I've seen a clip of it. I was in the U.S. when it happened. The gosh, I mean, you get me on a very tricky question in many ways because whenever I say anything about Tommy Robinson, uh, I have the thing that you have with you know, other issues, and everyone just wants to leap in. And I am, look, one of the easiest things in Europe is to, is, is what I describe in my book as, as going after secondary issues. So for instance, the English Defence League, uh, Pegida in Germany, and so on, and, and, and just totally crack down on and vilify, and basically treat them with a different level of observation and honesty than you do other groups. So, for instance, uh, the Manchester Bomber, uh, 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 the Ariana Grande concert, uh, seemed to have gone to a mosque locally, which had all sorts of things being preached at it. But basically, people didn't want to know about that stuff. It's, it's, we just don't want it because we're still, as we've said before, societally very badly set up for this argument. Whereas we're really good on you know, Nazism. I mean, you know, kind of, we were quite good 70 years ago in Britain on Nazism, but, you know, sort of culturally now across the board, thank goodness, you know, we're pretty good on Nazism. The problem is that there are some people who, for my mind, for short-term political gain, as well as some in people for long-term political gain, want to extend the borders of their definition to encompass uh, pretty much everybody who doesn't agree with them. And if I can say so, I cite at one point in the book, uh, somebody in Germany I spoke with about this, who who just wouldn't believe that basically somebody without a PhD could have any say in anything to do with immigration or Islam without being a racist. And I interviewed Tommy Robinson when he left the English Defence League, and I'd followed their activities with great interest um, whilst he was running it. And there are all sorts of things. I don't believe in street protests. I don't like street movements. I think, among other things, it's because you don't know who you're going to attract. You can attract very bad elements, particularly in Europe. And basically, you hold the can for the whole thing. You, you, if it goes wrong and somebody burns down a building, you're, you screw everything. And so I think it's a very unwise thing to do. But I also recognize that there are people who have great concerns about their society and do not you know, I have um, the access to the media, for instance, and I ha- that I have, or the voice that I have, and and so on. And I, I think people should be very careful between before, you know, scorning anybody who doesn't have their privileges, basically, not to get all kind of left wing wankery West Coast University on you. But I mean, there was there was this confrontation with Piers Morgan, which totally played into this thing because. Uh, you know, we just we've never had, as far as I can remember, an imam or something invited on to a mainstream program 
from a mosque that a bomber has gone to and have the the treatment of them that Piers Morgan gave to Tommy Robinson. And I don't know everything he's ever said in his life, but I've read his memoir and his very, you know, persuasive story about his own uh, persecution at the hands of, of the state, which I think was clearly a case of let's get this person and shut him down in a way that they have really not done with numerous actual Islamic extremists and so on. So there is a disparity and an unevenness, which is, which is unjust. And I think certainly justifies the, um, the sense of injustice that, uh, that Tommy Robinson and, and many others around him feel. And, uh, um, and this, uh, this Piers Morgan thing, so far as I could see, was Piers Morgan, um, I mean, he's not a, a very interesting thinker. Um, uh, he is a positioning sort of figure. And since his, his friend Donald Trump came to the presidency, has used the opportunity to sort of say some things about the Islam and the terrorism stuff, which is sort of, you know, further out than he'd have done before. And... And my suspicion is he felt that he'd got a little bit ahead of the debate. And then after the uh, attack, uh, uh, the, 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 this um, Finsbury Park attack, chose to sort of regain some ground by just screaming at Tommy Robinson on air for uh, uh, um, live TV. I think that's what happened. But as I say, I mean, you've seen it all. I haven't. Yeah, well, people should, should watch it because it, it's one of those moments where the hypocrisy and the unwillingness to speak seriously about a very serious issue just it crossed every conceivable line for me. I mean, it just seems like it should be a, a, one of those career-ending moments. I mean, we go back to that point, though, if I may make it quickly, which is that, as I understand it, from, the, from a bit of the, 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 the thing I saw, one thing was that Tommy Robinson was trying to point out, by the way, I mean, I mean we don't really, again, I mean, there's a trial that's going to happen of this guy in Finsbury Park. We don't know exactly what he was trying to do or what he was motivated by. Or I mean, I think we can take a guess, but I mean, uh, we don't know what the wider circle was, was and so on. Um, I think Tommy Robinson tried to make the point that, I mean, if it was me, sorry, if I back up, I, I don't think I'd have made the point on that particular day. But uh, um, what Tommy Robinson seemed to be doing was just saying, look, this, this mosque that was certainly for a period of time a major recruitment center for extremists and terrorists and which was then in the early 2000s at one point cleaned up and handed over, by the way, to the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and uh, including a, a Hamas, senior Hamas figure, would not be my... I mean, you, look, we should be able to simultaneously say, don't ever carry out acts of violence on members of the public, and don't kill people or mow them down when they're just innocently leaving mosque, and also say it's not great that... The, 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 the leadership of an institution might have connections to a terrorist group like Hamas. And it's sort of a demonstration of the paucity still of the argument. Uh, I mean, as I say, to, the, to some extent, this is a timing thing. I don't think that's the argument to have in the hours and days immediately after people are mourning uh, um, somebody who's been killed, murdered, and others who've been injured. But you could, you could have that conversation at some point if there weren't so many people just determined to use all of these things to avoid such discussion. And it's, it's very disconcerting that we're still, still there, you know. The part of the, the, the video I saw was it was just Morgan 
hectoring Robinson to have some respect about over the Quran and and any comparison to Scientology was just was blasphemous. I mean, basically, he was he's in favor of blasphemy laws. Essentially, it was the, the implication of of yes. This, if I can say so, Sam. I mean, this goes back to the one of the core themes of my book, which is that the the fact is is that if we lived in a society which had the largest growing population in our society was Scientologists. If the largest growing religion in your society was Scientology, you might you might find it harder than you do to pick apart Scientology. And you know, I get, I mention in my book that in the 1930s, Hilaire Belloc wrote a book called The Great Heresies, which included a chapter on what he called Mohammedanism which is something which would put most of the writings of you know anyone who's regarded as an islamophobe today to shame and you know it really looks you know makes makes um Pamela Geller look uh, look like you know kind of uh, soft stuff now why did Hilaire Belloc not have to um go into hiding in the 1930s in England after writing uh, the great heresies because there was no meaningful Muslim population in Britain in those days. Why did Salman Rushdie have to go into the hiding in 1989 after the Satanic Verses, which, again, I mean, way, way less than what Hela Belloc does, because by then there is a large Muslim community who might carry out the orders of the Ayatollah, and so on and so on. And by the time you get to where we are now, just because of numbers, as well as, you know, obviously devotion and devotedness and so on, but really just because of numbers, if you're Piers Morgan, I mean, it becomes plausible that you you become like enormously defensive of the Quran, and that's not just a, a result of Piers Morgan's uh, odd positioning. It's also, weirdly enough, a, a semi-rational calculation or act of calculation in a culture which, as I describe in somewhat remorseless detail in my book, is simply going that way, and. You know, it, it's it's about the facts on the ground, and um, and that, by the way, so a final point of that is that when we and I do quite a lot of it, lambast and joke about and ridicule politicians for, you know, not being stronger on some of this stuff. Now, I mean, you know, after three Islamist attacks and then one attack on a mosque, you know, you think maybe, maybe. Maybe they do know that they're dealing with an even more combustible thing than we think they are. Maybe. Yeah, well, that's, that is more dispiriting stuff. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a hard, it's a hard note to end on with you, Douglas, but I'm, I'm mindful of your schedule. And... No, no, I'm sorry. I, I, sort of, I sort of, as an individual, I, tried, I, you know, I sort of think of myself as a rather you know, jolly person. My friends don't complain about me much. <laughs> no. and, but yet I'm afraid that the, the, the facts we're all now living through are not the time to talk about, you know, being an innate optimist or an innate pessimist. You know, the facts that are emerging in Europe are very, very pessimism-causing. And uh, there's very little one could do about that, um, other than to remember what one of my favorite quotes from Mencken, who said once, you know, that, 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 that human progress is very significantly made, to the extent that one can believe in it, in my case, is very significantly made by jolly fellows heaving dead cats into sanctuaries and going roistering down the highways of the world. And um, anyhow, as a, I, uh, I always tilt my hat to you as a, as a, um, as a uh, jolly cat heaver into sanctuaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all in a day's work. Well, listen, Douglas, it is, as always, a great pleasure to speak with you. And 
we have to do it again because there are love to. many topics we have not touched. Well, can we agree to come back and do it soon? Yeah. No, yes. Uh, this this podcast is always open to you, so you should just know that. When you have an hour's worth of noise or more that you want to make, <laughs> send me an email and, and I'll have you back on. It's a deal. Listen, keep it up, Douglas. Likewise. Don't let the buggers get to you. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website. at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.